Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome back, everyone, to Your Case is on Hold, episode 31. We've been doing this for over 30 episodes, almost a year and a half at this point. Thanks for your support. If you aren't subscribed already, if you're not getting the notifications, please uh, subscribe through the JBGS website, through Stitcher, through Apple, through Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to get the notifications. Be sure to give us a five-star rating, all that good stuff. This episode is brought to you by the Miller Review Course. We're still in that stage where people are preparing for the summer of testing, big tests coming up. No better way to get the information you need to pass the part one or the part two than through the Miller Review Course. As always, the opinions, and this is, I've been looking forward to this one. This is going to be a a really, really good one. It's going to be packed with a lot of information, some hot takes, some controversial stuff. This episode is entitled The Sopranos Ending Paradigm and Plasma D-Dimer in Revision Joint Surgery. All right. So that's a first time that we've really... uh, shouted out the 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 title in 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 the episode and um there's a content warning so if you have concerns around content be aware if you continue to listen we're going to be talking about some some things outside so content warning so you know hopefully that engages more people into listening and hopefully that also um lets those who you know if you're sensitive listeners sensitive viewers maybe um once we get to the your cases on hold portion you might want to skip past that. So all of those takes, all of, all of that controversy, that's uh, my opinions and those of Antonia. She's equally responsible. I, she doesn't know what I'm going to talk about. So you might be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you getting me into here? I've been but implicated not, already. Thanks. Fine. <laughs> trust, trust me. But it, it does not uh, and should not reflect on the uh, editor-in-chief, the members of the board of trustees and the editors uh, on the boards of JBGS and the other constituent journals. For those who are not aware, I am Andrew Schoenfeld, Deputy Editor for Methods at the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, Du et Mondroy, and? I'm just simply Antonia Chen, a Adult Reconstruction Deputy Editor, and love every moment of the fun and facts that we're going to hear. Oh yeah, there are gonna be some, there's going to be a lot of fun. This is going to be fun. It's buckle up. That's all I got to say. <laughs> we'll get into it right away with Top of the Pile. We have current concepts review application of nucleic acid-based strategies to detect infectious pathogens in orthopedic implant-related infection by McClure. We then have what's important, I got the dog, lessons from a house fire. That sort of could be like a title for a Your Case on Hold episode in and of itself. This is by Darren. That's permanently free. Then we have opportunities for international orthopedic volunteerism an exploration of United States and Canada-based nonprofit organizations by Brown. There are uh, two obituaries in this issue, both permanent free, one for Dr. Rudolf Klassen, 1931 to 2022, and the other for Dr. Augusto Sarmiento, 1927 to 2023. 
We'll now move into the headlines. My headline is no increased risk of non-union with bisphosphonate use in a Medicare claims cohort following operatively treated long bone fractures by Thorne and colleagues. And there is a visual summary for this. This is interesting work conducted with uh, Medicare. Last year's uh, web-based longitudinal assessment had the importance of understanding uh, osteoporosis screening and the value of osteoporosis in treating patients with orthopedic conditions by Matskin and colleagues. And this, it really posed some issues that are are brought to light and touched on in in this particular work. And I, I thought that was particularly informative. Of course, there's an opportunity to intervene, and we've touched on this in several other previous episodes that, where, we've, where we've talked about papers here on the intersection between osteoporosis, be it around hip fracture, sentinel events, vertebral compression fractures, where patients have these fractures that either through cumulative events or a subsequent fracture can become life-threatening, uh, functional independence-threatening, and um, we have an opportunity to intervene. However, um, when you're talking about fracture healing, there's the the counterfactual concern. In the other camp is if you start bisphosphonates or treatment too early, it might impair fracture healing because of the effect of osteoclasts and things like that. And then, you know, a lot of these patients uh, in this peer group based on age are not candidates for things like teriparatide or abaloparatide because of the inability to use those in patients with a history of cancer or something like that. So bisphosphonates is kind of the go-to. It's the real workhorse. And, you know, there's the question, is osteoporosis medications initiated in the the perifracture period going to increase the risk of non-union? So a really interesting question. This used Medicare claims from 2016 to 2019, identifying patients over the age of 65 who had surgically treated long bone fracture. And then looking at the deployment of uh, bisphosphonates and if they went on to non-union, and also um, the use of uh, CIRMS HRT, hormone replacement therapy. So they had over 111 fractures that were included with close to a 10% non-union rate. So we're talking about thousands and thousands of patients. It is claims-based data, of course, but this is a, a very large cohort. And they found that the bisphosphonate use was more common in the non-union group with a non-union rate of 12.2% versus 11.4% if they weren't on the bisphosphonates. But once they controlled for race, age, sex, and Charleston comorbidity, bisphosphonates and the hormone replacement therapy were not associated with with non-union. And then they said bisphosphonate use within 90 days post-fracture was also not significantly associated with non-union leading them to the conclusion using bisphosphonates or hormone replacement therapy was not associated with fracture union status at one year, and orthopedic surgeons should not withhold or delay initiating these medical therapies for osteoporosis because of concerns around non-union. To quote the start of Nas's song, Blue Benz, the things we purchase, we have to be aware of what the value is. Is it really worth it? So is this investing in this study, is it really worth it? That's what it's really coming down to. Does the risk of non-union outweigh the other benefits that you get from starting bisphosphonate therapy as quickly as possible once a sentinel-type fracture has been identified? You know, they did say bisphosphonates are not significantly associated with non-union. And the p-value for that is 0.1. So yes, it's not significant. And it is a very large sample. 
However, the odds ratio, the point estimate for the odds ratio is 1.06. So the signal is that there is some type of risk. And it's a very, very, very borderline 95% confidence interval. The lower bound is at 0.99. So it's kind of right at that 1.0 on the lower bound. Now, if the odds ratio point estimate was 1.0, that's really what you want to see. That basically means it's like right at the middle, it really has no effect. And if they're starting within 90 days, the odds ratio was 0.94. So once you take everything together, I think the signal is really that if if there is some kind of impact to the negative driving the non-union, it's very, very slight. So there might be a slight increase, statistically negligible. You'd need larger than obviously almost 11,000 patients with non-unions to detect it. So I think this can really be something that individuals can invest in. And I think that the benefits certainly outweigh the risk when you see something like this. It reminds me a lot of aspirin and the use in fracture care. And I think there was a lot of controversy or, you know, we live in the world in orthopedics when it comes to hearsay or thought process being like, well, anti-inflammatory is that it's bad for fracture healing. So these type of database studies are actually very useful in looking at that. And while you know, non-union is a high percentage, you know, talking about 9.4%, we have over, you know, 100,000 fractures that are looked at here. So might as well help out patients, might as well um, prevent future fractures, I'd say. And this is a good public health uh, initiative, I'd say, for individuals. Yeah. And, you know, we've, you, our, our avid listeners have heard us put so many, you know, big data type studies on hold over the last 30 episodes. This is one where like the real, this is the real value of big data. This is where it's not, what are the risk factors for non-union in 100,000 patients? Let's just, you know, run everything we possibly can in the model. It's a purposeful question that you can only really get at using this type of, you're not going to be able to get this with a prospective study or a randomized trial. Agreed. And they didn't put that in the conclusion, which is good. Yeah. <laughs> Future studies. Right. Yeah. They didn't say more research is necessary. I like it. We're looking at big databases. Let's keep on going on big databases. Let's keep the good database feelings going. Mine's looking at the effect of body mass index on the relative revision rate of cemented and cementless unicompartmental knee replacements and analysis of over 10,000 knee replacements from national databases. This is by Mohammed et al. And for 30 days, it's free. So you should definitely read this. So previous studies have looked at revision rates in patients undergoing total knee arthroplasty using cemented versus cementless fixation in patients who are obese and found that obese patients actually do better with cementless fixation. So the real question is, is that true for uh, partial knee replacements as well too? So this is a similar study in UK patients and talking about large databases, we looked at the, they use the National Joint Registry in England and Wales and Northern Ireland and the Isles of Man, NJR, and the Hospital Episode Statistics Admitted Patient Care, the HESAPC. So lots of databases there, lots of patients, over 10,000 of them, with long-term follow-up, 10-year follow-up, which is really nice to be able to see that. And that's the beauty of these databases that they can look over long periods of time. And these registries are really helpful for collecting this data, especially if there's one insurance and that patients can be followed up and actually have reliable follow-up, because that's always a bigger problem if there's not one national insurance. They looked at the outcomes of revision rates, which is uh, specifically changing of components or revision of the implants that were placed in there, indications for revision, reoperation rate, so any surgery, that includes things like manipulation, and then three-month complication rate. And again, they only focus on the three-month complication rate. So it's interesting that you know, they have 10-year follow-up, which makes sense from an implant perspective, but only three months follow-up for complications. And they separate it into medical and surgical complications. 
for medical complications, they had things like stroke, myocardial infarction, respiratory tract infection, deep vein thrombosis, or pulmonary embolism, urinary tract infection, acute renal injury, or blood transfusions. For surgical, it was due to like wound dehiscence, surgical site infection, and periprosthetic fractures. And they took these patients and they matched them. So they had a huge number of patients that they whittled down. They had to remove patients who were like bilateral unipartmental neuroparts placements. They're undergoing TKA or other reasons. And they match these patients based on BMI, age, sex, Charleston comorbidity, ASA grade, year of surgery, bone graft usage, surgical indication, BT prophylaxis, ethnicity, rural slash urban location, admission type, deprivation indices, and the UKR surgeon caseload, or how many cases that surgeon did. As we know that if you do more cases, in theory, it should have less complications. If you do less of them, you potentially have more complications due to that. I do like that they try to match by year of surgery. And as you can imagine, the cemented implants came out first, cementless implants came out later. So they tried to match it by it, but that was one area that was statistically a little bit different. There's a slight difference in the cementless implants. So they went, came down to uh, 10,440, um, specifically Oxford unicompartmental knee replacements. And they had to use Oxford ones because um, they have only ones that are cemented and cementless. Um, it is a mobile bearing implant. So keep in mind that this study, these study findings may or may not translate to non-mobile bearing. So fixed bearing uh, UKA. So this is specifically a mobile bearing implant. And they matched these. They had 5,221 group for the cemented and 5,220 in the cementless groups. And then they differentiated people by their body mass index. So they went under underweight, normal weight, overweight, and obese. But keep in mind that they're not evenly distributed. So by the definitions of obese of greater than 30 kilograms per meter squared, there were over 5,600 patients in that group. In the overweight group, there were 3,813. In the normal weight, there was 995. And in the underweight group, there were only 13 patients. So it really wasn't an even distribution of the BMI um, there, but they were matched according to that. And of course, note that this is a conflicted study. Right? I'd mentioned that it had to be the Oxford implant because it had the cementless design. And it did disclose that the authors did have some relationship with the company. So that is somewhat a conflicted study. There were 250 revisions, 4.8% in the cemented group and 181 revisions, 3.5% in the cementless group. And the overall survival rates were 90.1% in the cemented groups and 92.8% in the cementless groups. Pretty good survival rates for that time frame, especially at 10 years when we tell our patients that normally either patients progress arthritis in another compartment and so have to undergo a conversion from a UKA to a TKA or there's aseptic loosening. So 10-year survival rate of those values are, are quite good. They found that the cementless, for the cementless um, unicompartmental knee replacement patients, the revision rate, the overweight, and obese groups were significantly lower compared to the rate in the normal group. Again, these are much higher population numbers. But when the patients were overweight and obese, they did have less when they were, and, and all different control variables, and they looked at reoperation rates, and they found that all of them across the board were better for those if they were obese or overweight to undergo cementless implantation. So the take-home message from the authors is that cementless unicompartmental neoplasty should be used in obese patients and overweight patients. My question I'm curious about, because these are obviously matched patients, they wanted to be able to match these to look at these directly. My curiosity is, what's the revision rate for cemented versus cementless implants? And what happens if a patient loses weight? If a patient loses weight, does that actually change the variables there? You know, should you actually do cementless in those patients who started off obese or overweight? Or should you go to cemented? Does the um, revision rate or does the reoperation rate uh, get better over time? Does the survivorship change based on that? 
So it's interesting to look at this. One thing that is interesting to say is that they did find that overweight patients had lower rates of aseptic loosening and arthritis progression if they use cementless implants. Not quite sure how cementless implants would lead to less arthritis progression unless they're put, placed in or put in differently. And obese patients had lower rates of aseptic loosening and pain when cementless implants were used. So food for thought, this gives me some pause to say, okay, this could support me if I wanted to use cementless implants in uh, obese patients. It is not yet available in the United States, but it is getting to that point. So something to think about, and again, our obese patients are 30 kilograms and over. It'd be neat to see this study in you know, 35 kilograms and over, or even 40 and over as well. Yeah, interesting work, a uh, lot of power given the number of uh, patients that they're able to include. And the, the number of component years is certainly very impressive. There are only 13 patients with who are uh, underweight. So can't really speak to that one way or the other. I think there is the potential here for there still to be issues around residual confounding from, you know, an indication bias for the revision. That's probably baked into all kinds of retrospective work around revisions, because in many ways, it's probably there's there's a good degree, degree of provider as well as patient preference sensitive decisions in that setting. Sure, that makes a difference. You know, people say, how much is progression? For example, arthritis, how much is pain? What's it due to? Things like that. Which is a good segue actually into the your case is on hold featurette with the content warning. So here you go, content warning. And by the way, um, just the, the previous paper is free for 30 days. So definitely do check that out, access that. This paper comes with a commentary as well. The Your Case is on Hold featurette, Plasma D-dimer, is non-inferior to serum C-reactive protein in the diagnosis of periprosthetic joint infection by Tarabici et al. This is work out of Thomas Jefferson and Dr. Parvizi's group, of which you used to be a part. You're not an author on this, are you? I am not an author on this. And I will just come right from the top. I think it's you know, a very interesting paradigm. I know this group has done a lot of work around plasma D-dimer and all the ways it can be used in identifying various things in the joint replacement space, but they're really looking at the diagnostic utility of plasma D-dimer for joint infections. And this is a prospective study where they enrolled initially over 500 patients. Ultimately, they were able to use data from 412 patients. And this is undergoing revision hip or knee arthroplasty. And they looked at plasma D-dimer, ESR, CRP, and fibrinogen that were measured preoperatively, and then ultimately what the results of were uh, of the cultures that were taken intraoperatively during the revision case. So of those 412 patients, they had 95 confirmed infections using the modified 2018 ICM criteria, which they say hasn't been validated, but then they have the rejoinder, caveat, exculpatory language. But there's also no validated determination for, for PGI. So take that, take that what you will. The D-dimer, they, they measured the performance based off of the area under the curve characteristic from the receiver operating curves and then the sensitivity and specificity. So they start with D-dimer, which had, and now the AUC is basically the variation in the outcome of interest that's explained or, or detected by the, that particular find, uh, variable. So it's kind of, you know, uh, a characteristic that can be compared across different parameters. So for D-dimer, the AUC was 0.86. 
with a 81% sensitivity, I'm rounding here, and 82% specificity. Then CRP has an AUC of 0.862 with a 90% sensitivity and a 70% specificity. And then ESR has an AUC of 0.83 with a 74% sensitivity and an 85% specificity. And then fibrinogen really didn't perform as well. However, even though that one is lower, all of them had comparable accuracy for the diagnosis of PJI. So D-dimer, as they say, was non-inferior to CRP and ESR in the diagnosis of PJI. They then looked at indolent organisms. There were just 24 cases uh, with culture-negative PJI. But in indolent organisms, they said that the D-dimer had the highest sensitivity at 94%, again, rounding, which is good. But how do you know? You don't know beforehand if it's an indolent organism, right? (laughs) Like, oh, this is probably indolent. So I'll order the D-dimer for this one. It smells Um, indolent. That's why. (laughs) It smells smells indolent. So it's a prospective study. And here's where I come to this content warning, the Sopranos ending paradigm that I referenced in the title. So we, we brought you Kaiser Soze first. Then we had Jackie Childs. Now we have the Sopranos ending paradigm. This is from Antonia's home state of New Jersey. Very excited about the Sopranos, of course. It was a mega hit in the mid-2000s. I think all of our listeners are probably passingly familiar. Um, They probably weren't all old enough to um, be allowed to watch the Sopranos, maybe. But um, there were a lot of people caught up on those kinds of things during the the COVID pause. So uh, I expect everyone knows what we're talking about. And if you don't, you should, you should check it out because I'm going to give you some insight here as well onto the actual Sopranos ending, all right? Because no one knows, and this is how it ties in. No one knows what happens at the end or what you're supposed to do with the ending. There's like this huge buildup where the protagonist's uh, S- Soprano family have gathered in a diner and the, the main character, Tony Soprano, is there. Uh, with his wife and his son, and they're waiting for his daughter. They're in a diner. And, you know, there's a lot of build-up, build-up, suspense, build-up. And then the the screen just goes to black, and you're left with... Many people who are actually watching it thought something happened to their TV or their cable feed, because they were just like, wait, what? That's it? What happened? Did I miss it? Like, what happened? And that's kind of what what I feel like. And it's not just unique to this particular paper. I, I think we see this more and more with a lot of research these days where you conduct a study, you have these findings, and just the take-home message, you're, you're building it, it's a prospective study. This, the value of this variable has never been assessed before. And then in, in an effort to kind of make it like, you know, we got to get this into print, we got we to gotta really sell the novelty of this work and build it, it's more about the narrative than it is about the impact of the, the finding. So we get to, they've done the work, D-dimer actually went, you know, nuts and bolts. It doesn't actually perform any better than CRP and ESR, which are the the general like go-tos, right? That's the gold standard, ESR, CRP. And they even say in the conclusion, plasma D-dimer was non-inferior to serum, CRP, and ESR. Non-inferior. It may be useful adjunct when screening patients undergoing revision total joint arthroplasty. It's like, yeah, it didn't do any better, but you should use it still. And that's kind of where it's like the screen goes to black and 
you're either like, yes, I should use it, and you're ignoring the results, or you're embracing the results and saying, well, but it didn't actually perform better. There seems to be a sidebar about these indolent organisms, but that's just with 24 cases. You know, that, that there's is not, and the other thing that for me is a little bit a cause for pause here is uh, where they go into, you know, the breakdown. D-dimer had the highest sensitivity in these indolent organisms at 94%, ESR 79%, fibrinogen 75%, CRP 74%. But then the next sentence is that these comparisons actually didn't show significant differences because those confidence intervals are going to be really wide. They didn't present the confidence intervals, but they're going to, we know they're going to be wide, number one, because of the limited numbers of cases that they have. Even, even the 95 cases with infection is not really that much, but they're not significant because the confidence intervals are overlapping. If you had a very high number of patients, 94% is not the same as 79%, right? 94% and 79% are definitely not in the same ballpark. But here, 94% and 79% are not different that they can detect because of the limitations in the sample. So once again, the screen has faded to black and you're like, wow, well, what am I supposed to do with this? And their conclusion is, yes, D-dimer, non-inferior, maybe a useful adjunct, but it's non-inferior. So I guess you could just use the ESR and CRP and that would be okay too. That's what non-inferior means. <laughs> it's not better than... Uh, it's not worse than, I guess, a plausible clinical application. I'm interested in your take on this. If you have a revision and you're unsure about the infection, right, and the D-dimer is high, then maybe you just treat it as an infection. But that presumes you're going to get D-dimer on, on everything. It doesn't seem to me like adding D-dimer into when you're drawing blood already and you're going to get the ESR and CRP anyway is, is probably going to add that much cost. But realistically, there's not evidence here based on this scientific work that D-dimer is giving more information than the ESR and CRP. And the other thing to keep in mind, and this is you know, something that they're not really pointing out, is the decision was already made to undergo revision in all of these cases. So they already decided the knee needed to be revised, which does have a Bayesian effect on the, the risks in this population. They're already at a higher risk for infection or indolent affection or something like that. And I think clinical question that I see with a lot of patients who are referred to my clinic after they have a joint replacement and they're having pain and they're like, well, we ruled out that there was a, you know, that, 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 that there's loosening or that there's a need for revision. So is it coming from their back? Is it some type of nerve injury or something along those lines? But, you know, in a lot of these cases, they've, they've gotten lab values to sort of rule out the infection part. And that's where the, the question you know, there's another whole workup before the decision is made to do the revision, right? I mean, so what's your take? What am I am I on point here? Is you're on point. I would get ESR and CRP, and if they're elevated, then I'm going to aspirate the knee, and that's going to be my check there. So, you know, what I would actually would like to see it be kind of interesting. And their first initial studies were looking at D-dimer as a marker for reimplantation, right? That was a big one because we don't have a good marker for that. We do have a good marker for infection. That's ESR and CRP. They're all nonspecific, right? So it sure you can use it as an adjunct, but you can use what we've been using and you don't have to change the regimen of practice. All right. So now this is the Sopranos ending paradigm. It's probably not the last time we're going to call it out, but not the last time you're going to hear about it. 
But this will be the one time that I actually talk about the theory behind The Sopranos, the actual Sopranos ending, okay? So mm-hmm. get it up on YouTube, get your net, your, your streaming service up so you can watch this again and you can tell me, you know, am I on or am I off? And, and what it comes down to is hints and Easter eggs that they actually put in earlier versions of The Soprano show. So earlier on in The Sopranos, there's a character named Eugene Pontecorvo. Only in your home state of New Jersey is somebody named Eugene Pontecorvo. Just like only in Charlestown do you find someone named Albert McGlone. Anyway, Eugene Pontecorvo, in an earlier episode, shoots someone in a diner. And he's wearing a gray members-only jacket. All right? He comes up on the individual who's sitting in a booth, and he shoots him. That's why we're having a content warning here around the shooting. When you go to the where Tony and his family are in the booth in the last episode, there are a lot of distractors going on, but someone sitting at the diner counter is also wearing a members-only jacket. In fact, it's the same members-only jacket that Eugene Pontecorvo was wearing in the previous episode. And if you look at the credits, the end credits, that character is referred to only as man in members-only jacket or something that members only jack so it's important enough that that's the character's name and while they're waiting they flash to meadow the daughter outside trying to park the car he's sitting the individual with the members only jacket walks by him and he like looks up and he like there's a visual engagement with that individual and then that guy goes into the restroom and then it's like you know they come back to like tony's face there's some other distractors meadow is coming in The bell rings for the diner door that she's walking in. And then you are looking from Tony's vantage. It's the camera angle is that of Tony Soprano. He's looking at Meadow as she's walking in the door. And then it goes black. That's when it goes black. And that's because the guy with the members only jacket came out of the bathroom and did the same thing that Eugene Ponacorvo did to the guy several episodes before when he was wearing the members only jacket. That's the Sopranos ending demystified. I just learned a lot myself. So thank you. <laughs> I'm never going to look at Jersey the same ever again. It's your home state. Come on. Well, I love it. For NJ. <laughs> All right. So now we are going in to the honorable mentions. Per the request of Dr. Philip Blazer at Brigham Women's Hospital, shout out to uh, our listeners who are making the program better. We are going to be giving short one-liners uh, to help you understand what the findings of the honorable mention articles are going forward. So thanks, Phil, and the listeners, thank you as well. So we have comparison of humeral head replacement with glenoid reaming arthroplasty, ream and run versus anatomic total shoulder arthroplasty, a matched cohort study by Levins. There's a commentary for this. This compares uh, a surgeon practice around anatomic total shoulder to the ream and run approach, finding comparable outcomes in most of the analyses that they run, uh, suggesting revision for glenoid loosening may be a concern among younger and active patients. We then have return to work following intramedullary nailing of lower limb long bone fractures in South Africa by Masterson and colleagues. This study highlights the profound effect that lower limb long bone fractures may have on an individual's ability to return to work in the South African context, and this may result in substantial economic impact. 
And then we then have retrospective analysis of associated anomalies in 636 patients with operatively treated congenital scoliosis by Wu and colleagues. This does have an infographic and is permanently free. Uh, this study looked at 636 Chinese patients who had undergone scoliosis correction surgery at Peking Union Medical College Hospital. They found intraspinal anomalies showed more severe deformities with cardiac anomalies associated with remarkably worse pulmonary function and established a linkage with maxillofacial anomalies. That's where we are at for this episode. That ties it up, puts it in a package. Um, on top. Yep. I guess, you know, we talked about the Sopranos ending paradigm. We didn't really say if uh, that study was on hold or not. I think our very uh, in-depth description of what the Sopranos ending actually entails probably indicates that that study was on hold. Dr. Soprano's calling. Um, <laughs> and your case is on hold. Your case is in the trunk. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this one as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Um, do stay tuned for the next uh, episode. And uh, if you haven't caught up on all our older ones, do check those out as well. Uh, we're about out of time for this one. Uh, we'll try and do better next time. Your case hopefully is ready to go, but our cases here are still on hold. Enjoy. Enjoy.